Amen, church. Good to see you this morning. My wife and I missed seeing you last Sunday. We were serving a church in Chattanooga, as we've done for many years, and we are glad to be back together with our family. It's so good to hear you sing this morning these great truths. We're going to be back in Galatians chapter 3, if you would. Galatians 3. As you're turning, I'll mention this only because he couldn't. Uh, we are rejoicing with our friend Matt this week. Uh, some of you, word has kind of filtered out that he has completed. This, is, this represents the better part of a decade of work for Matt, and he completed the work necessary to earn his doctor of ministry degree. Is it D-Men? Yeah. Not demon, D-Men. <laughs> D-Men. His doctor of ministry and uh, completed the work of that, so we are rejoicing with him. That great accomplishment. It's good to see friends back. Good to see Caleb Hurst back in from Moody and uh, Chattanooga. Not in Chattanooga, in, in uh, Chicago. But speaking of Chattanooga, we're saying goodbye to, to Abby uh, Nguyen. Uh, Abby is part of our, our family since she was a little girl. Uh, married last year, Tim, who is stationed in Japan. And this time next week, she will board a plane to be reunited with her husband moving to Japan. So we're going to miss her. It's good to have the Nguyens with us from Udawa. Thank you for coming. We are looking at four verses today. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. 10 to 14, just picking right up where Matt left us last week, that ninth verse. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one close by. So if you can locate one, it's probably going to be a good idea to have it open on your lap today because we're going to keep pointing back to this text. We sort of work through it together as we typically do. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. The scripture says, For all who rely on works of the law... Are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you have not come today expecting something novel. We have found that there is very little in the book of Galatians that is unique and novel. I don't know how many different ways. I'm sure Matt feels the same frustration. How many different ways we can stand up every week and say... Only Christ can save you. I don't know how many times we can say it from different angles or take a different word or reword it in some way to say, your works will not, cannot ground your acceptance before God. If you are saved, it is because Christ saved you. And I'm not sure that I know a full answer to the question I just posed, but I can only speak anecdotally out of my own experience here. I know how very easy it is for me to drift from what I know. That is why I must preach the gospel to myself all the time, not just every day, frequently through the day, remembering again the hope of the gospel. As one who not only hears this message preached frequently, but one who is charged with the responsibility in part of preaching it. I recognize the gravitational draw toward works righteousness. That that suspicion in our minds that we are received in some measure before God based on how we're doing. And I'm telling you, that pull is very real and it is very persistent. Not just because I see it, because I feel it. And I experience it like a vehicle with an alignment issue that wants to pull toward the shoulder of a road. And the driver must keep holding tension against that to keep it from veering off into the ditch. That pull for many of us 
is that subtle suspicion in our hearts that we get what we earn, not we get what we're given. It's the suspicion that does not, as the Judaizers did, negate entirely the work of Jesus in regards to our initial acceptance, but it does amplify and inflate the place of behaviors in relation to our ongoing acceptance. Sure, grace made me happy, or made God happy with me, but it's my responsibility to keep him happy. And that is contrary to grace, and it is that legalism that Galatians is laboring to dismantle. It is no less dangerous. It still lands you in a ditch. Well, there are texts of Scripture. I was visiting with a brother here who's an experienced preacher just a moment ago. There are texts of Scripture where you encounter the very heart of the Christian faith. If you're here and you're just marginally acquainted with Christianity, maybe you don't fully understand or you're confused by the many denominations and doctrines, we're in a passage of Scripture that holds before us the very heart, the Christian doctrine of redemption, how men and women can be reconciled to an offended God. So there are texts where that is just so plain. You, you get there without much work. This passage, I think this sort of gives you an idea of where we're going in terms of an outline. This passage presents for us a contrast between the two dominant approaches to religion. And it also presents the outcome of those approaches. So think of two roads and two destinations, contrasting two different approaches and the end of those approaches. The two approaches, doing and believing. That's the two approaches contrasted here. The two contrasting outcomes, curse and condemnation, favor and life. So the two contrasts relate to behaviors, what we do, what Paul describes here as law-keeping. The other is believing, living through faith. And then we'll look at the single occurrence that creates this divide, which verse 13 gives us so clearly. So let's walk through it together. Noting that stark division between these two approaches and the destinations, the end or the terminus of those two roads. Would you look at it with me? Verse 10. Remember, he's just referenced Abraham in verse 9 as the man of faith in verse 9. Now he draws a direct contrast Referencing those who rely on the works of the law. So hold that, mind, that thought in your mind. Four, verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Can you just hold that thought before you? There's some massive ideas here that are central to understanding this. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Naturally, that gives rise to a question in all of us. Is that descriptive of me? Am I relying on works of the law? Am I bracing against, retreating into behaviors as my basis for acceptance before God? If that is the case, this could not be more stark. All who take that approach are cursed, are under a curse. He's going to argue that the very basis of this is because we cannot would not regularly, given our nature and disposition, we could not regularly and with precision keep the law of God. I've mentioned, I think, question seven of the New City. We read it from time to time. What does the law of God require? Answer, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Well, church, how are you doing on that? Perfect? 
perpetual obedience? Well, we see here his argument is going to be built by this whole succession of Old Testament quotes. He quotes both the law and the prophets. And here he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, which in that context, he's just laid out this whole succession of curses that are attendant to particular iniquities. Those who take bribes, those who murder, all manner of sexual sin, dishonoring parents. There's a curse associated with that. Those who withhold justice from a foreigner, from an orphan, or from a widow. And that verse tells us, Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So it is not just to acknowledge their legitimacy. It is not just to hold a kind of reverence for the law of God, but to demonstrate and confirm it by perfect and perpetual obedience to that law. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. The point is this. If that's your approach, if that's the route you're taking, this law keeping, it is either entire or it is pointless. It is either perfect and precise in its entirety or it secures you nothing. Now, when we think of the law of God, I think you know that we think initially of the moral law of God contained in the Ten Commandments, which I taught you, I hope you remember, a few weeks ago, the, uh, how, to, how to know the various laws of God. Those are meant, I, I know, to instruct us, but the law of God expands beyond that. Uh, those who study it say somewhere in the range of 613 different commands related to a whole range of topics. Topics, property and boundaries and the parapets around your roof to protect your neighbor. What is permitted and when it is permitted. Hand washing and what is clean and what is unclean. It's, it is not just the Ten Commandments, which would be formidable enough. But the law of God extends far beyond that to all manner of case law. And the point that Moses is making at God's direction is that if you don't keep this, you're under a curse. If you cannot, with precision, keep this, you abide under a curse. You remember Jesus' expansion on and application of the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if, if it were conceivable, and it is not, that you could get through life and still honor each of the Ten Commandments, Without exception. Jesus indicates the issue is deeper. The issue is your heart. So a man who would say, I have managed to get to this point in my life and not commit physical adultery. Jesus' response will be, have you noticed other women and have you looked again and have you considered other women? In your heart, have you lusted? If you have lusted, then you are guilty of transgressing the law of God. Somebody says, look, I've, I've reached my 30s, I've reached my 40s, I've reached my 50s, and to this point, I can honestly say, I have never murdered someone. And I drive on 640 all the time, and I, that's really saying something, that I could come to this point in my life and, and never ram somebody else, even though that, that impulse might come in me. The, um, he is saying, look, have you ever held in your heart animus towards your neighbor if you have felt hatred you have transgressed the law of God and if you have transgressed the law of God by not keeping it you are under curse a few years ago I started noticing around Knoxville these little signs that were stuck into the ground kind of like politicians or realtors use um, that, that had the Ten Commandments. You remember seeing that? I'm not seeing as many of them anymore. They were all over the, the city. I, and I'm all for, let's get Scripture out there in front of people. But I can see how that could be done well or could be done poorly. Those little wire signs listing out the Ten Commandments. If what is being said is, y'all need to behave. Knoxville. You need to straighten up and fly. You need to knock off your lion. 
you got to quit stealing. Probably should quit lying and stealing. But if the message that is, is being presented to the world is you need, you need to behave, that will take you only so far. If the message, which I trust was the intent, is to say, Knoxville, we've all got a problem that we can't fix. Because this law stands against you. This law stands against me. We have violated the law of God. We need a redeemer. That is exactly where Paul is taking us in this text. He's saying, rely on this and you are under a curse. I wonder, do you have room in your theology for a God who makes these kind of moral judgments? Do you? For, for a God who calls things wrong, for a God who pronounces oracles of judgment on those who do wrong, and then a God who acts on those oracles of judgment, enforcing a curse on those who flaunt the law of God. Whether or not that is readily received, and I would say it is wildly unpopular in our day to suggest that a God would hold this kind of moral intentionality. Whether or not you receive it warmly, it is true. Our God is holy. and It is not in the nature of God. We must know this. It is not in the nature of God to overlook sin. Any sin. Our sin is either carried with us into eternity... And paid for. Or it is dealt with at the cross. But it, every sin gets answered. Well, those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Nobody is brought into a place of favor with God via law keeping. You say, hang on, Ronnie. The curse is associated with the law, not with God. Well, you can't unhook, you can't unhinge the law from the lawgiver. In fact, the law reveals the character of the giver. Those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, that message, I said it's unpopular, it will offend the moralist for its generosity, its grace. It will, it will offend the pluralist for its exclusivity, its insistence that only Jesus can save, you, save us. One wants to be accepted on their merits. The other wants to depose God by setting the rules himself. They pre prefer a more open posture. All who rely on the, law of the, uh, the works of the law are under a curse. It is not these behaviors themselves that condemn you, but your reliance upon them. It is not the behaviors themselves. It is the confidence that you place in your own goodness that is most apt to sink you. And if you speak to anybody in Knoxville, on what basis do you expect to be received into glory? The default answer is going to be, I'm doing the best I can. And that is no place to plant your flag. Here's the irony. You know the particular heresy he's dealing with in, in, in Galatia. So these, the Judaizers had said, we acknowledge Christ. We are not completely dispensing with Paul's theology that is Christocentric in its... We, we believe in the work of Christ, but we are adding to it the demands of the law. So specifically, the one that is most dominant in Galatia, uh, this modern-day Turkey was circumcision. So, so you must go through the law, go through the door of circumcision to get to Christ. The uniform testimony of Scripture is that it is Christ alone who saves. So unless you keep it all, this, this, this law keeping, it is either entire or it is pointless to redeem. The argument is sound. Everyone who depends on the law is under a curse. Because the law curses lawbreakers, and we're all lawbreakers. Let's push further. Verse 11. Now it is evident 
that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous to live by faith. And if I don't keep referring back to my notes, I'm going to say this the way I've heard it my whole life. So I'm probably going to say, the just shall live by faith. Same thing, the righteous or the just to live by faith. Verse 11 describes our great need in two ways. Favor and life. Justification and life. Being justified before God and the joy of life before him in glory. Of course, definitions are important. When we speak of justification, we have to define it. It is that judicial pronouncement, a legal pronouncement, where the, the repenting sinner, the one who is turning away from their sin and running, fleeing to Christ for mercy, that one is forever declared free from the guilt of their sin. That's what I mean by the word favor. His inclination towards you is no longer hostile, but it is a posture of favor. Sometimes it's helpful to think in terms of contrast. Justification and condemnation are antonyms. Is that helpful? Justification and condemnation are antonyms. To be condemned is the opposite of being justified. To be justified is the opposite of being condemned. What he's saying is evident. It's obvious. Nobody is justified before God by the law. The law serves a purpose, but that purpose is not justification. Now hang with me. The law serves a purpose, but that purpose is not justification. The law's function is largely exposure. It reveals our need. It takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ because the law was never meant to square the record between God and his people. The law's function is largely exposure, but it is no good at saving. It's not meant to justify. So this is apparent, says Paul. Nobody is justified before God by the law. One of the commentators I referred to made the point that in the minds of the Judaizers, it was the people of the lands. It was, it was the lawless Gentiles who were under the curse. Paul's expanding that to touch all of us. He would say in Romans chapter 3, there is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Now it is evident, he said, that no one is justified, word favor, before God by the law. The law is a miserable means and ineffective means of justification. For the righteous or the just shall live by faith. That's the second descriptive word in verse 11. Live. Favor and life. And here he draws from Habakkuk 2. You remember this? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now, that does not mean I just approach life with confidence and optimism. I'm a, I just have a lot of faith. That's, that's a kind of an obscure and weak understanding. That's not, that's not what is in view here. The one who by faith is made righteous will live. The just will live by faith. The justified man or woman escapes death through faith. Those who have been declared just on the basis of faith gain life. That is really what is in view here. Of course, this expands beyond temporal life, uh, but life beyond the immediate. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, this is, he's speaking to the Father and says, this is life eternal. This is the life we're speaking of. This is life eternal. Knowing the Father, the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I don't care how much you love Habakkuk 2.4. Martin Luther loved it more. Martin Luther loved, I mean loved, Habakkuk 
If anybody in church history made an honest effort at law-keeping and works righteousness, it has to be that little German monk laboring to secure favor. I mean, talking about a man who gave an honest run at trying to earn the favor of God. It's hard to imagine anybody working harder to secure the smile of God than Martin Luther, a man who was racked with guilt, fear, condemnation, a man who was zealous, a man who was earnest and, and, and rigid in his application of the code that was before him under the heavy, oppressive Roman church. He would take pilgrimages. He would do penance. He would actually physically punish himself. He was meticulous to the point of obsession in his confession. He would fast for long periods with the expectation that maybe the cumulative effect of all this zeal and all this energy would secure the favor of God. As you can imagine, it about killed him. At a monastery in Erfurt, he, he sunk into a deep depression, so much so that he had, to go to, uh, he had to be put to bed. And laying there in that bed, sure that he was dying, this line from Habakkuk 2 came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. As he laid there in a delirious state, he would quote that again and again and again. The just shall live by faith. In time, he got better and traveled to Rome. You remember this very important trip that he made at the direction of the Pope who who had promised anybody who would climb the steps of the cathedral at St. John Latron would, would receive an indulgence for their sin. This was a man who was willing to do anything to get the favor of God. They were told that the steps were taken from Pilate's judgment hall and that they were stained with the blood of Christ and so pilgrims would come and they would climb up those steps on their knees, crying and kissing the steps in some effort to receive favor. Luther was actually on these steps Ascending those steps when the words of Habakkuk hit him again. Those words that he'd repeated on his bed at Erfurt. Justified man will live by faith. The just man or woman escapes death by faith. The story goes as his son tells it, he got up right then and walked right off those steps and returned to Wittenberg. He, he was completely freed of the burden of works at securing his favor before God. When that truth settled on his heart, he said it was though the doors opened and he entered the very paradise of God. That weight of working to gain the smile of God fully lifted. Church, look here. Habakkuk said it. Paul said it. I'm saying it. Luther said it. The just man, the just woman, the righteous. You're going to escape death one way, and it is faith in Jesus Christ and no other means. None. The just shall live by faith. It is not your faith that saves you. It is the grand object of your faith that saves you. It is Fixing your hopes. Faith in the abstract does nothing. But affixing your hopes to the grand object of the Christian gospel, the, the Lord Jesus, brings life and favor. The just shall live by faith and they will be justified. We'll return to that. Verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. You see, Paul is intent on holding law and faith as separate categories. There is this and then there's that. There is law and there is faith. Remember, the Judaizers had tried to create a kind of 
works grace amalgam that acknowledged Jesus' work, but also coupled with it law-keeping. And he's saying the law is not of faith. These are separate categories. There is this and there is that. Like a man stepping off a dock onto a boat. You've got to choose. But you can't stay there very long. You're either on the boat or you're on the dock, but you can't hold justification by faith and justification by works together. John Calvin lays out this contrast. He said, the law justifies him who fulfills all its demands, whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merits of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by your own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. You can't hold them both together. It is either, you are either justified by faith in Christ or you are justified by works of the law and the law was never meant to justify. Well, here he quotes Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules for if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So there is a hypothetical possibility of life to those who keep the law. It is true in theory that those who do them and live by them would know favor with God. But show me somebody who, apart from Christ who has. The point is we are all lawbreakers. Even if you determine to live the remainder of your life, starting right now, in perfect obedience to the law of God. And suppose that you were successful. Unlikely. You still have a history that testifies against you. So it's a little late for that discussion, right? As lawbreakers, we are under that curse. The grace that is described here counters the principle that we have returned to again and again in our time in Galatians. That independent line of thought that says, I am what I am and I have what I have because I've done what I've done, and I do what I do. I pay my own way, thank you. And that is counter to the grace laid out in the gospel. When we come, we come broke. When we come, we come empty-handed. Your works will never hold. Well, Ronnie, where then can we turn? Is there some place we can go because all you've done for the first part of your message is hold our head underwater. Let us turn to the focal point, not only of this passage, but the focal point of human history. Look at verse 13. I hope you hear angels in the background as I read this text. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Church, look here. Christ redeemed us from the curse, that heavy curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's here that we reach that watershed, that proverbial fork in the road. Here is where outcomes are determined. Favor in life, condemnation and death. It pivots, everyone should hear this, it pivots on what you do with Jesus. It pivots on what you do with what is contained in this 13th verse. It is your response to that simple message Atonement and curse bearing. Jesus has done for us on the cross what we could not do for ourselves. Now I'm speaking to people who've heard that all of your life. Can I say that to you again? He, became, he delivered us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus has done for us on the cross what we could not do for ourselves. What law keeping could never produce. 
The only way to escape the curse is not by your work, but by His. It is the only way. Here we encounter that rich, beautiful, biblical language of redemption. He redeemed us. He purchased us. He ransomed us. He paid the price. He set us free from the awful condition of bondage to which the curse of the law had brought us. The curse of the law from which Jesus redeemed us has to be the curse we we looked at in verse 10, the curse that was resting on us on account of our disobedience. He redeemed us from it by becoming a curse himself. The church is, the, the truth is, church, the curse was transferred from us to him. He delivered us, ransomed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became accursed so that those who trust in him might be spared that curse. We we cannot think of that imagery without going to that great atonement chapter. The Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. You know the story. I've heard it illustrated the same way. I'd rather not use a Bible for this illustration. I'll use a hymnal and a Seventh-day Adventist hymnal even better. Uh, the, uh, if, this is, um, if this is my efforts to reach glory, if this is me, and I have a book with all my offenses against the law of God recorded that stood against me, a record of debt that stood against me. But to get to heaven, I must carry this. But this debt, this weight, this defiance, this right here has put me under a curse. There is no reaching glory on the basis of law-keeping. There isn't. God sent his son in the person of Christ, blameless in every respect, perfect in obedience, one with the Father, completely united to him in all of his perfections. He entered the world as a baby. And here's the glory of redemption. It's no more complex than this. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then it pleased God to bruise him. And he was bruised for my transgressions. He was chastised for my iniquities. That curse fell to him. He bore your curse. He bore my curse. It is that and only that that can deliver us from the curse of the law. Paul points us to another Old Testament citation. Very interesting. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 Verses 22 and 23, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man who is hung is cursed by God. This is the law of God. You shall not defile your land. The law says. The time when the law was given, of course, the Romans had not invented the abhorrent practice of crucifixion, hanging people on the cross. What is described here is when a person was executed under the law justly, probably stoned, they would affix that body to a stake, hang it on a tree as a pronouncement. Here it is now that God had rejected him. To be hung on a tree was to display to the world, this one has been rejected by God. This is not saying the man is cursed by God because he is hung on a tree. But that death by hanging was indication to Israel that this man bears a curse. Peter would preach in Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, 
by hanging him on a tree. 1 Peter 2, for the, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he, here it is, himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. To be hung on a tree was to indicate you bear the curse of God. It was the horrible indicator that Jesus died under our curse. This mirrors nicely one of the great marvels in Scripture and probably my most frequently quoted verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To the Jewish mind, Jesus' death on the cross would have been indication that he was rejected by God and not worthy of their confidence. But it was not his sins, but theirs. It was not his sins, but theirs that drew the curse of God. Surely this must be the true horror of Gethsemane's dreaded cup, isn't it? This must have been what was hovering over the blameless heart of the Lord Jesus in the hours approaching his death. Not the sleepless night or the abandonment of friends. Not the menacing prospect of standing before Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod. Not the scorn or the mockery, the spitting or the smiting with their fist, not the pain which would have been formidable. Jesus prayed for deliverance from the cup because he was facing what only a member of the Godhead could fully understand. He would bear the curse for us and absorb in his blameless body the full measure of the justified fury of an offended God. And that is the heart of the gospel. The song that we sang a moment ago, you may remember a few years ago, was a denomination that, that sought to edit the Gettys hymn in Christ alone because they had trouble with the wrath of God. So the line in there that read, in Christ alone my hope is found, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God, God was satisfied. The editors of this hymnal appealed to Keith Getty and said, could we edit that and instead of making it the wrath of God was satisfied, let's make it the love of God was magnified. I'm not sure he said it exactly this way. He said, keep my, hymn, my song out of your stupid hymnal. I don't... No, it is the wrath of God that was fully, fully met in Christ. Dr. Sproul's excellent message on this text, which I'll link to on Wednesday, you need to hear this, the curse motif, the atonement. He references the cry of dereliction where at the end of Jesus' experience on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dr. Sproul references Albert Schweitzer, a German philosopher, Methodist, or a Lutheran minister, where he identified this as the cry of a disillusioned prophet who had believed that God was going to rescue him in the 11th hour and that he only felt forsaken. So you, you take this away, the hope of the gospel becomes tenuous and not trustworthy. He didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. For Jesus to become a curse, he had to be forsaken by the Father. Church, what drove it? A kind of love that you and I cannot understand. What wondrous love is this? 
What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? And when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Result, you see it in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I can hardly read this without hearing Moses in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. You and your offspring might live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. It is the blessing of Abraham in part because it was the blessing that Abraham himself received as he believed. But it is also referent to the great promise of God to Abraham that in you, Abraham, will all the families of the earth be blessed, including folks in Knoxville. Praise the Lord. In in you and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Favor, life, and in this text, the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit attending you, walking with you. Favor and life rise from the blessing of God and condemnation and death come from the curse. So it's perfectly fine to quote a carol on March 5th, isn't it? He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. You see the contrast between the two approaches, don't you? Believing and doing, believing and doing, believing and doing. You see the contrast in the outcomes, curse and condemnation, favor and life. Stated plainly, We are either living by faith or we are under a curse. Say, Ronnie, I'm trying to be a good man. I'm trying to be a good woman. I would say, irrespective of how much esteem and reverence you might have for Jesus, if you tie your acceptance to behaviors, you are under a curse. Are you telling me, Ronnie, that a kindly, soft-hearted, homeschool mom could remain under a curse? That is precisely what I'm saying. You're saying, what about principled men who listen and give and work hard and remain faithful to their wives and kids? Could they remain under a curse? That is precisely what I'm saying. It's true. How people with filters on their devices and hearts for the poor and those who share what they have and understand the issues and take Sundays off and vote right and honor curfews and are nice to their dogs and all the kind of righteousnesses you could cobble together. Are you saying they might be under a curse if they rely, if they rely on their works to save them, the curse Hovers over them. Who then can benefit from this unspeakable grace? It is in Christ, that last verse says, it is in Christ that the blessing of Abraham came to the Gentiles. All the blessings of our redemption are bound up in him. He bore our curse. The blessings of deliverance are found in him. How then can we be found in him? Through faith and not works. That amalgam does not work. You must abandon any confidence you have in what you have done or what you will do. It is through faith that we receive the promised spirit. If we just be a little blunt here, if your righteousness is all you want, and your righteousness is all you get. 
and your righteousness will not hold. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Think of that forgotten lyric from James Proctor. When he, Christ, from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Here's the line. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete. That's my call to you, friends. Just cast your deadly doing down. Abandon that. That was never meant to hold you. Find in Christ a refuge. I don't know how else to say this. You have got to renounce law-keeping and works righteousness as the basis for your acceptance. You must place yourself before the cross, humble and empty-handed. You must come to the cross, to the place where Jesus bore your curse. And rest all of your hopes right there. We see this negatively demonstrated in Jesus' troubling words, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do whatever mighty, do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the problem? They would not let go of what they did. They would not let go of what they did. You've got to cast your deadly doing down. You don't hide behind how many you have delivered in the name of Christ. Or how you have prophesied in his name. You have got to cast your deadly doing down. Sam Alberry said, I don't need to look good so that Jesus can look good. I need to be honest about my own colossal need so that he can look all sufficient. It is Christ who is our refuge. So friends, look away from self. Look to him for mercy. He has plenty And he is generous. So while we sang it um, today, and our hearts turn there again now as we close, we will sing of our Redeemer. We will sing this wondrous love for me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set us free. We turn now to this ordinance. Our hearts find deep joy in this. For you have done for us what the law could not do. You have accomplished for us what our works could never accomplish. So magnify yourself as the redeemer, the one who redeemed us from that heavy curse of the law. Be magnified even in this ordinance, we pray. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.